Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how will God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it is so good to worship together with you today. So thank you for joining us. Uh, We've been going through a summer sermon series on the book of Psalms, and more so than any other book, Psalms is a window into the human heart. While there are glories and heights and soaring, there are many glimpses of ugliness, bitterness, shame. There's a personal vulnerability and honesty in the Psalms that you can't really find anywhere else in the Bible. And I love that this book, it covers the whole range of human emotion and experience. You have joys, you have victories, you have celebrations, and then you have grief, anger, loneliness, despair. All this to say, no matter who you are, no matter what you're experiencing, God will meet you in the Psalms. So I hope that this series will encourage you to stay in the Psalms. For those of you who are a little bit more ambitious, try this for the month of August. Starting tomorrow, August 1st, read five Psalms. Throw in one proverb every day, and you'll get through both books by August 31st. It'll be a nice summer Bible reading challenge for the month of August. 
If you try it, if you don't like it, then I will give you your money back in September. But today, we're going to look at Psalm 73 and its main theme, spiritual depression. Spiritual depression. By spiritual depression, I don't mean clinical depression or mental health issues and problems, although they could certainly contribute to spiritual depression. But not all of us are clinically depressed, but I'm willing to bet that all Christians at some point have experienced, are experiencing, and will experience spiritual depression. I want to recommend a book right up front, and uh, I'll be quoting from its author quite a bit. No, not Chance the Rapper. Um, The book is called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. It's written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who happens to be Tim Keller's favorite preacher. It's a book that has helped me tremendously, and if you're convicted at all by anything that I talk about today, please get yourself a copy of that book. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he describes spiritual depression as a state of unhappiness, discontentment. It's this unsettling feeling of a lack of ease, this tension, this turmoil, a troubled state. It's the opposite of joy in a relationship with God. And this is exactly what the psalmist Asaph is going through. In verse 21, he says that his heart was grieved, his spirit embittered. This entire psalm, it's Asaph's journey into spiritual depression and how he recovered from it. Asaph says in verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He's saying it was so bad that I almost didn't make it out. It was really bad. And who was Asaph? Well, he wasn't your everyday believer. He was a worship leader. But not just any worship leader. He was a Levite whom David put in charge of musical worship right before the ark in Jerusalem. So what that means was he was one of the most famous, prominent religious figures of his day. He was deeply spiritual. Remember, God in the Old Testament, he dwelled in the ark of the covenant. So Asaph was literally one of the closest people to God during his time. But despite who he is, despite what he does, this psalm records his descent into deep discontentedness with God. But it's followed by a spiritual recovery that brought him up closer to God than ever before. So just know that spiritual depression, it's not an indicator of spiritual immaturity. It doesn't mean if you're spiritually depressed that you're an immature believer. The most mature followers of God throughout the Bible, those who experience the highest of heights, often experienced the most profound depths and miseries. Jeremiah, longest book of the Bible, 
he was a weeper and a complainer. Jonah wallows in self-pity after God saves Nineveh. Elijah, after that dramatic showdown with the priests and the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, he flees into the wilderness, crippled by fear and depression. So if you have or are experiencing the spiritual dryness, the spiritual depression, if God seems really far away from you, if you're asking yourself, what's the point? Is it worth it? That doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It doesn't mean you're not good enough to cut it. Following Jesus is not easy. Verse 1 of this psalm, the way it begins, Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a very obvious statement that he gives. God is good to his people, whose hearts are turned to him. It's a simple truth, yet the rest of the psalm is about how hard it is for Asaph to believe and to hold on to this truth. I think all of us here, we know up here, we've heard it, we've read it. In theory, God is good to his people, yet we have the same struggle as Asaph. It's so hard for us to believe moment by moment, day by day. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the ultimate cause of spiritual depression is unbelief. And we all struggle with it. So I think that we can learn from Asaph's experience. What was his condition like? How does he recover? And how can we apply this to our own spiritual journeys? Today, I want to look at the condition of Asaph's spiritual depression, the cure, and then the conversion. So condition, cure, and conversion. First, the condition. Asaph's struggle, it begins in verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For Asaph, it begins here. The grass begins to look greener on the other side. The things his heart wants start to align less and less with what God offers. The prosperity and the success of the people who don't know God become more and more attractive to him. I can almost picture Asaph sitting in a cramped middle seat, gazing longingly ahead at the people lounging in business class in front of him. We've all experienced this, especially with social media. You see how other people are living, and suddenly you become less satisfied with what you have. Think back to that very first sin in the garden. Here's Eve, perfectly content in paradise. The serpent comes to her. He plants this thought in her mind. If you eat of the forbidden tree, you can become like God. God is holding out on you. There's a better life on the other side. And then Eve buys into it. She looks around and all of a sudden, paradise itself looks really ordinary and inadequate. Asaph is no longer content with what he has. 
and his heart longs for what God has not given to him, but those who don't even know God, they get to enjoy it. And the more you dwell in this envy, the more you feed it, the more it grows. And slowly, Asaph's entire perspective is completely distorted and skewed. Look at what he says in verse 4 and 5. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. You know what this is? This is Instagram versus reality. He's lost touch with reality. He really begins to think that the wicked have no struggles at all. They don't get sick. They don't get weak. They have no problems. Completely untrue, but he buys into it. Envy has warped his perspective. And look at how he views himself in verse 14. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishment. Really, Asaph? All day long you've been afflicted? Punished every morning? Now, I don't want to be insensitive, but Asaph is having a full-on pity party here. Total exaggeration. The wicked live perfect lives. My life is hell. Can we relate? The more we see beautiful people on social media, the more ugly the person in the mirror looks to us. When we see how those richer than us travel, eat, and live, suddenly our apartments, our food options, our trips become so ordinary. And another thing that's appealing to Asaph is the fact that these people who don't know God, they're not accountable to anyone or anything. They're free from all guilt and, and consequences. Listen to how he describes them in verse 6 through 8. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. What he's saying is they don't have to worry about trying to be good enough. They don't have to struggle to keep the law. They can just live for themselves freely instead of serving God. He goes on. He says, Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. It seems to Asaph like they have everything heaven or earth could offer. And they're so popular. Everybody comes to them. Everybody likes them. People turn to them. They drink up everything they offer. Do we feel this way? When we see those who don't know God able to do whatever they want and live with Zero guilt or consequences. They can cut corners at work and succeed professionally. Their time isn't divided between work and church. They can live for the weekend. They can participate in any pleasure, consume any substance, and not feel bad. The more we think like this, the more living in obedience to God starts to feel like such a burden. I'm in this Christian cage, 
and I can't do anything I want to do. In verse 21 through 22, he says this, When my heart was grieved, when my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Asaph is not God's friend. He's not God's son. He's not even God's loyal subject. He's a brute beast. Strictly a master beast of burden relationship. No intimacy, no friendship. Living for God is zero delight, 100% burden. Do any of us feel this way? Perhaps like me, you grew up in the church. I grew up in a very legalistic, works righteousness emphasizing church. I never felt good enough. Christianity was, you have to do this. Whoa, you can't do that. You can't hang out with these people. You can't say these words. You have to go to church. You have to pray. You have to read your Bible. You just feel like a beast of burden under a stern and demanding master. That's how Asaph feels. And he, he hits his lowest point in verse 13. Surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. He's at his bottom. He's, he's ready to quit. It's not worth it. I don't want to do this anymore. By this point, he is deeply entrenched in spiritual depression. There's no beauty for God. There's no wonder, there's no admiration, there's no intimacy, no love, just obligation and duty. That's Asaph's condition. What's the cure? Verse 16 through 17. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. You know, Asaph, he couldn't sort himself out. He, he couldn't find a way out of his turmoil. He was troubled. He was about to quit until he entered the sanctuary of God. Then he understood. Then the light turned on for him. Asaph needed to encounter the living God at the sanctuary. You see, following God, it couldn't be obeying rules. It couldn't be applying these principles into his life. Faith could not be transactional. It had to be relational. So the turning point for Asaph is when he enters the place of worship, the sanctuary. Notice, he doesn't pray by himself at home. He doesn't read his Bible. He has to physically go to the sanctuary of God. There's something about going to the place of worship that cannot be replicated by any other means. The place where God most wants to meet us is in the gathered worship of his people. In our Western individualistic culture, we often have it backwards. When we feel spiritually dry, what do we do? We 
have to double down on our spiritual disciplines, right? We have to read the Bible, force myself to do it. We have to pray. We buy the newest Christian books. We get that worship playlist queued up on Spotify. We listen to the most influential pastors' podcasts. We go to the big Christian conferences or we go to intimate emotional retreats. Why is it that very often the last place we truly look for God is in an ordinary Sunday service? Every New Year's, I get people at our church coming up to me and saying, oh, this year I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray. And I say, great. I fully 100% endorse that. But you know what I always say to our church? I say this. You know what's an even better New Year's resolution? How about this one? I'm not going to miss church once this year. Even if I travel, even if I go on vacation, even if I go to weddings, I'm going to make sure I go to church. I'm going to prioritize that. You know what? If you want to level up on your commitment, try this one. I'm not going to be late. I'm going to be on time for every service. Parents, I see some parents in here. The best thing you can do for your kids is to show them that worshiping God is the most important thing for your family. Your goal is for your kids to be in the sanctuary of God where they can encounter the living God. That is the best thing for them. And if you deprive them of that, if you communicate to them that it's no big deal missing church, then you are crippling your child's faith. If you're struggling spiritually, I know that church is often the last place you want to be. It's the place you need to be the most. In the gathering of God's people, in the singing of songs, in the proclamation of good news, in prayer, there is explosive spiritual power and grace. The best thing you can do for your spiritual depression is to go to the sanctuary of God and keep going. I love this. In the first half of this psalm, Asaph refers to God in the third person. Starting with verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. Even when he enters the sanctuary, he says, I entered the sanctuary of God. But what happens in the next verse? There's a shift. And it goes from third person to second person. The pronoun changes to you. The psalm It begins with Asaph writing about God, but right in the middle of the psalm, it shifts to a conversation with God. You, 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 you. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that worship takes our eyes off ourselves, off the troubles and the confusing data our minds are dealing with, and puts our eyes on God. Only then do things come into the proper focus. And when Asaph does it, when he goes to the sanctuary of God, the scales fall from his eyes. Asaph sees two things clearly. First, the futility of the world. Second, the surpassing value of God. 
He enters the sanctuary and he gets it. He understands that the final destiny of those who don't know God, it's not something to be envied. If what the Bible says about eternal life, eternal death, heaven and hell, if it's true, then it makes no sense to envy those who might prosper for a short time, a few decades on earth, only to face eternal judgment. That makes no sense. Verses 18 through 20. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Brothers and sisters, friends, all of us are teetering on the precipice of eternity. Those who are living as though they are not accountable for how they live or that their lives will have consequences for what happens after death, they're not to be envied, they're to be pitied. But you know what really turns Asaph around? It's realizing that he's no better than unbelievers. He's deserving of the same fate. Look at verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. He's saying this, I'm just as guilty as those who don't know God. But for some reason, for some reason, you're with me. I hated you. I was bitter towards you. I treated you like a cruel master instead of a loving God. But yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. What is the cure for spiritual dryness, spiritual depression, spiritual apathy? Beholding God's grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unconditional, unrelenting grace. Asaph realizes that not only should he not envy the wicked, but given his privilege, given his relationship to God, he's actually morally worse than those who don't know God, yet he is loved, forgiven, and redeemed. If I were to ask you this question, who is the worst sinner you know? Does your mind immediately go to racists, rapists, mass shooters, terrorists, A Christian's answer to that question is always going to be me. I am the worst sinner I know. Based on my privilege, based on my proximity to God, that I can still do this to him. If after the sermon, one of you came up to me and said, Gene, I, I hate you. It would hurt a little bit. But you know what? I get over it pretty quick. But if my wife looked at me in the eyes and said that to me, I, I don't get over that. Why? Because of anyone in the whole world, she is supposed to love me the most. 
And yet for her to betray me, for her to turn on me, that's much worse than someone I, I, I don't know doing that. Do we have an understanding of how bad our sin is? Our sin was so bad that only the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross was enough to redeem us from it. The most costly thing in the universe is what it took to forgive our sin. Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven, so that God could hold on to our right hand and never let go. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, our future is not like the wicked who will take none of their riches with them when they die, but our future is glory, an eternal reward, an eternal inheritance that will only get better and better and better every day for all eternity. Asaph gets this, and his response is as a completely changed man. I love these words. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a proclamation of the surpassing value of God. Only you. I don't want anyone or anything else. You and you alone. Even if my heart and my flesh fail, God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion, meaning I don't need anything else. He's more than enough for me. What makes Asaph feel this way? He's been rescued. He's been rescued. There's no feeling like it to be delivered. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever felt that feeling of, of being delivered or rescued? My parents, they're going to come visit me from Korea this fall. And I'm so excited because I haven't seen them since before the pandemic. In 2014, I, I got the phone call from them that you never want to get. Mom has cancer, colorectal cancer, which has spread to her liver and lungs, and it's not looking good. Doctors are saying maybe eight to ten months. I remember hanging up the phone. I, I, I had a newborn, my firstborn. I, I, I held him, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept. The next few months and years were really tough. Surgeries, chemo, radiation, clinical trial, kind of like a Hail Mary, desperate prayers. But she did it. She beat the odds. She beat cancer. We shouted. We rejoiced. The cancer was gone. But during the pandemic, I got the call again. The cancer is back. She has to go through it all over again. My mom was incredible, but, but this time was even harder. She got through it, but barely. She had nothing left in the tank. The doctors wanted her to get one last round of chemo. She said, I'm done. Even if I die, I'm done. But amazingly, her latest scans came back. 
and she beat cancer twice. To almost lose her and to have her saved twice, I can't begin to describe the relief, the gratitude, the profound joy of more time with this woman who means so much to me. When I got the news of her remission, I wasn't thinking about my problems. I wasn't thinking about the inconveniences and stresses in my life, my daily struggles, my grievances. I was overwhelmed with joy. You know what? My mom has been given some more time here. But soon enough, she will go to the Lord. She will die again. And if her earthly deliverance, if these few years, they can bring me this much joy, then what should my heart feel when she, when I, have been saved from all eternity, from my sin, from my condemnation, from my shame? What should I feel when I think about being justified by grace, through faith, in Christ alone? As I behold the riches of the gospel, the amazing grace of my Savior, the eternal glories that await me, the only appropriate response is joyful gratitude and love. There's no room for self-pity, for despair. There's no room for anxiety and bitterness. Remember we saw how distorted Asaph's uh, his perspective was? He said, the rich never suffer, and, and I'm suffering all the time. They have everything, I have nothing. We see in his response a complete reversal of his prior perspective. The wicked, they don't have everything. In fact, they have nothing. I have everything. I have everything. Asaph has changed. His relationship with God has changed from impersonal too intimate. His view of the world has changed, and even his posture has changed. Look at how the psalm ends, verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. That's how it ends. I will tell of all your deeds. He begins this psalm with a pity party. He's navel-gazing. He's just focused on what others have, and he doesn't. But now he's outward-facing. He's telling the world of all of God's deeds. He's proclaiming the good news of God's grace to others. You know, the telling of God's grace, that's such an important part to recovering from spiritual depression. Not just telling others. In fact, the most important person to tell of God's deeds is yourself. Is yourself. This is because in spiritual depression, we saw it with Asaph, our hearts lie to us. The wicked have everything, you have nothing, and we begin to buy it. Did you know that you are the most influential preacher to you? So what that means is this, you have to intentionally speak the truth to yourself. One more quote from, you guessed it, Martin Lloyd-Jones. This quote, I think, changed my faith. He said this, The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. 
that we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil, defy the whole world, and say, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. If you're struggling this morning in your faith, if you're weak, if you're not sure you're going to make it, if your heart and your flesh are failing, hear Asaph say to you, and then you say to yourself, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. If you've been going through spiritual depression, one more thing, lean into the church. Come to the sanctuary. Reach out to us, the pastors. Join a community group. I know you often want to isolate from the church when you're struggling, but push yourself into it. Continue to seek the Lord, and may you come to say like Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, amazing grace. May it change us. May it lift our hearts. Be the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.